2017 was another eventful year in American education policy, starting with an unprecedentedly close confirmation battle over Donald Trump's pick for education secretary, Betsy DeVos, and concluding with negotiations over a tax overhaul that may have big implications for K-12 school spending, but does little to advance DeVos's cause of expanding school choice. I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and I'm joined today by EdNext senior editor, Paul Peterson. Today, Paul and I are going to look back at the year that was through the lens of the articles in Education Next that received the most traffic over the course of the year. You can find a blog post with links to the top 20 articles in the journal from 2017 online at educationnext.org. Paul, welcome back to the EdNext podcast. Well, thank you for sharing the opportunity to discuss the topics that we've covered over the past year. <laughs> it should be fun. So let's dive in. And I think we have to start with the article that attracted the most visits by far to the website. And that was an article that didn't respond to current events, but rather to a question that hundreds of thousands of American families ask themselves each year. And that question is, is my child ready for kindergarten? Diane Schonsenbach, an economist and Preschool educator Stephanie Howard Larson teamed up to offer some advice to parents asking that question, and their answer, as I read it, was probably so. Yeah, you know, I wasn't very enthusiastic about even running this piece, I'm embarrassed to say, uh, but you talked me into it, and so did the other members of the editorial team, which shows really why it's good to have an editorial team make these decisions. And my concern was that they were a little too harsh on redshirting, they seemed to think it was only appropriate for a very few students, that it should almost always be the case that you should put your child into kindergarten as soon as possible. And, you know, I think that it's not that clear. I think that the evidence is not so strong that parents can't make a judgment for their own child that's that's quite reasonable. Well, I think they're careful to say that parents should make the judgment for their child, that they're the ones that know the child best. But I think it really does speak to uh, the large number of parents, and I would include myself in this camp a couple of years ago, who are on the fence about the issue and aren't sure really what the research shows. I think there are strong pressures, social pressures, uh, to redshirt, especially boys, and they show this is you know, most acute in relatively affluent communities uh, where it's become something of a norm, uh, and they show that the benefits really just aren't all that clear, that yes, early on your child will do much better relative to their grade level peers just by virtue of the fact that they're a good bit older when they're going through a given body of content, but that those effects fade out pretty clearly over time, uh, entirely by the time students are in high school, and that they redshirting comes with the cost of having the child be consistently with a younger and presumably therefore less well-behaved peer group as they move through K-12 education. And so, uh, you know, I found the case uh, maybe a bit more convincing uh, than you did. Well, it certainly is a provocative piece, and I think a lot of people found it extremely interesting. I know everybody I've talked to really found this uh, a piece well worth their time. Now, the second article on the list was quite different. Again, I think reflecting the uh, broad range of material and issues that we cover in the journal, but Robert Pondicio took a look at matters of curriculum in Louisiana. The article was titled, Louisiana Threads the Needle on Ed Reform, 
launching a coherent curriculum in a local control state. What strikes you about this article and the interest that it received? Well, first of all, Robert Pondicio writes very well, and so <laughs> it's an extremely readable piece. And secondly, Louisiana is a really interesting state. It's got a state superintendent who's so committed to the Common Core, even when the governor is opposed to it, and he's so talented, John White is so talented, that the governor doesn't want to let him go, even though the state is committed to having a voucher program and New Orleans has the biggest charter program in the country. So the fact that you can combine Common Core with choice and innovation that is seems to be quite the opposite is it's a really informative piece. The article certainly does make it clear that John White is a impressive leader in Louisiana, and it also provides some insight to the strategies that he's been using to try and influence the decisions that districts make about curriculum uh, in a state that has a very strong tradition of local control on those matters. So uh, finding various ways to nudge them in the direction of selecting high-quality materials that are aligned to, you know, as you say, the Common Core, which he's been trying to use as a lever for improvement there. Um, and, you know, what I find intriguing and what I think has led a number of people to look at Louisiana is the fact that uh, when teachers are surveyed about their understanding of Common Core practices, that Louisiana has started to become something of an outlier. Of course, we'll have to see whether those practices translate into improvements in achievement over time. Well, the early returns are looking positive. There's, Louisiana has, has moved in the right direction, despite the fact that it's starting at the very bottom. So, yeah, no, it's, it's a fascinating tale. Next on the list, the third-ranked article in terms of website traffic at educationnext.org in 2017 is Mike McShane's profile of Education Secretary Betsy DeVos. He entitled it The Relatively Mainstream Reformer. Why was this article important in your view, Paul? I was surprised it didn't come in number one. First of all, it's a very well-written piece. And secondly, this piece was released at the very time that her nomination was under consideration. And as you mentioned, uh, this was the most controversial appointment that the president had made up until this point in time. It barely got through the Senate. And I think the vice president cast the deciding vote in what was otherwise a 50-50 tie. So why didn't the media flock to this, and why didn't the media cover this? Well, I just think it, it shows the tremendous bias against Betsy DeVos in the mainstream media. And the fact that uh, and it brings out all the, uh, the importance of this article because it really shows that she has been devoted to helping out poor kids for a very long time period of time. And whatever you think of her experience and her ability to carry out uh, her, her job as Secretary of Education, uh, you, you, you cannot doubt the sincerity of the commitment that she brings to her task. Yeah, I think the title of the piece, the referring to her as a relatively mainstream reformer, really brings out to me what was important about it, which is that her views on education reform, at least as she's chosen to pursue them through her philanthropic activities over the course of her uh, adult life, uh, if you think those are radical, then really you're calling much of the education reform conversation of the past two decades radical. And that's a conversation that has occurred across party lines. And so I think this uh, 
I, I think it's important to keep that in mind. And I was interested to see that Lamar Alexander, who was chairing her confirmation hearing, of course, uh, took up that descriptor mainstream and made it really the theme of his opening remarks when he was trying to introduce her for, I think, exactly that reason. Now, certainly didn't uh, eliminate all controversy surrounding her uh, confirmation. Um, but, but it I probably helped solidify support that could easily have eroded to the point where she might not have been appointed. So, Marty, you might say this has been the most influential piece that's been assembled. Oh, I'm not sure we can go that far. But next on the list, the 2017 poll, always a big event for us, released each August. Uh, and so it's good to see it high on the list in terms of reader interest. And the big finding, of course, this year was a quite substantial drop, 12 percentage points, I believe, in support for charter schools, uh, bringing the level of support and opposition roughly the same for the nation at whole. And that was a, a significant change uh, in one year for a policy that has tended to have uh, quite broad support. Well, it'll be interesting to see whether or not this is an outlier and whether or not we just uh, picked up a, a decline that's temporary or whether or not this is a harbinger of where we're going to be going in the future. I am eager to find out what the results are for the 2018 head next poll. Yeah, it will definitely be uh, helpful to have two data points rather than one uh, on, on this decline uh, to see whether it, it really is there. Uh, the other thing that was interesting was uh, what had been a quite substantial decline over time in support among the public and among teachers for the Common Core really stabilized in the case of teachers turned around. Uh, and so it may be that some of the uh, toxicity of the, the brand uh, has uh, gone away a little bit. Perhaps. So, you know, Marty, for me, the most influential piece is the one entitled Should Professors Ban Laptops? Because I read this piece and I said, you know, I, I think I'm going to ban laptops this year. So uh, what was your reaction to the piece on uh, laptop use at West Point Academy? Well, like you, I found the research very compelling. Uh, it was a nice randomized experiment conducted at West Point where the professors had the ability to randomly assign which sections of students would be allowed to use laptops and uh, tablets in class. And, uh, you know, the ones where laptops were banned did a good bit worse in mastering freshman uh, economics at West Point. And so, like you, I responded uh, by changing my own practice. I guess I was responding not just to this article, but a handful of studies that have come out recently suggesting that laptop use may be detrimental, not just for peers of laptop users by virtue of distracting them, but even for the student using the laptop himself or herself. So I banned laptops in my fall course this uh, semester for the first time. I found that uh, students, once you explained the reason for them, the fact that you were making what you see as an evidence-based decision, were quite welcoming of the change. And I found the classroom environment, at least from my perspective as an instructor, to be much improved. I, uh, I agree. I had the same reaction. Both things. I, one, I explained why we this was happening, and they seemed to understand. And secondly, I think the class went better this year than in the past. It's certainly nice as a professor to be able to 
look out and see eyes looking at you rather than eyes looking at a screen. It makes it harder to, uh, easier to know that you're on roughly the same page. So maybe we just got evidence we wanted to get and relied upon that. Like well, I'm glad we have the study in addition to our own personal experience. So continuing on the topic of technology, there were three articles in the journal this year that dealt in some way with competency-based or personalized learning, a nice piece by John Marcus on, on Western Governors University, which at the higher education level has uh, been the, I guess, trailblazer in this regard, a piece by our editor Michael Horn and his colleague Thomas Arnett on competency-based learning for teachers, where they explore the concept of micro-credentials, and then Joanne Jacobs looking at Summit Public Schools, calling them the pace setter in personalized learning. Certainly a lot of interest in personalization and allowing students to progress through uh, curriculum uh, according to their ability to demonstrate competency or mastery of it. Well, this has been one of the themes that Education Next has decided to focus on uh, over the last number of years, and I think that there is a constituency for this kind of an essay uh, in our readership, and the fact that so many of them uh, come up in the top 10 is an indication of how strong a constituency Education Next has in the digital learning community. Two articles on the list dealt specifically with teacher evaluation, and they're an interesting pairing. One by economists Tom D. and Jim Wyckoff uh, looked at the impact evaluation system that was launched in Washington, D.C. under Michelle Rhee and has been continued by her successor, Kaya Henderson. I think Antoine Wilson now there is uh, continuing in much the same vein. And their research has shown that the system has been quite successful, seems to have played an important role in DC's overall trajectory of improvement over the past decade. They show teachers responding to the threat of dismissal for very low performance, really making sizable improvements. Teachers with the opportunity to advance in their career are also demonstrating improvements. They find teachers who were dismissed being replaced by much higher performers. So really it's a success story for teacher evaluation. Pair that with Chad Alderman, who reflects on his own role as an official in the Obama administration in trying to take teacher evaluation reform national and ultimately concludes that that effort was a mistake. How can we make sense of these two well, pieces? It really shows the advantages of bottom-up reform as compared to top-down reform. One of the things that happened in Washington, D.C. was that teachers were given the option of joining in with this new evaluation plan or staying out of it. If they joined in, they got the opportunity of making money in six digits, which teachers at that time just were not earning. And uh, But at the same time, you could be dismissed if you didn't turn out to be an effective teacher. So not every teacher joined into the program. Now that this program is in place, everybody wants to be in on it. Everybody sees the advantages of being able to move up the ladder very quickly if you're demonstrated to be a competent teacher and they're being able to recruit people that feel that they're talented enough to, to move in that kind of direction. So this is a pretty exciting bottom-up reform. Now, when you mandate this, that all states have to do it, then all the political forces come into play that try to, to gut things out and we uh, water them down. And so I think the two Essays are both on target and they're very complimentary. 
Another piece that caught my eye on the list was Alexander Russo's take on the XQ Super Schools competition. This was a competition put on by the Emerson Collective that invited various design teams around the country to submit plans to develop new high school models. The winners were announced in late 2016, and now each of them has $10 million to work with over the next five years to turn their dreams into reality. Is, is this effort worth tracking? <laughs> well, I don't even know if XQ is wanting to track it. I'm not sure that they're going to be doing this again. Uh, it's it's uh, it, it seems to me like a one-off. I, I just don't know. And, and so many of the choices are so uh, particular to certain circumstances that how are we going to generalize from this? I, I find the whole XQ project very uh, discouraging. Uh, that's a lot of money being put into a, a particular strategy that doesn't seem to have a well-defined set of objectives. Russo raises some of those questions in the piece, and so I'd encourage readers to uh, check it out. But if you're not excited about the XQ competition itself, is it at least maybe telling us something about an emerging interest in high school. It's often been said, I think Bill Gates said it not too long ago, that the American high school is obsolete. But I think it's fair to say that education reform efforts, certainly in the No Child Left Behind era, have been you know, heavily focused on K through eight education rather than the high school. Is it time that reformers are turning their attention to the high school? This is a great irony because the National Commission on Educational Excellence back in 1982, their whole report was focused solely on the high school. It was not about American education. It was about the American high school. So supposedly the whole education reform movement was to focus on the high school, but very quickly people shifted to elementary and middle school. And it's very telling that No Child Left Behind said, we're gonna measure student performance every grade three through eight. And after that, we're only gonna have one test in the high school. So that's sort of throwing the high school out of the story. Uh, any parent will tell you, oh, the local elementary school is pretty good, but our high school's a serious problem. It's almost a universal, and yet the reform strategies for doing something about the high school are almost uh, totally missing from the, uh, from the conversation. But maybe that's changing, and maybe this article is a, a sign of that change. Well, let's hope so. I think this is definitely where we need to go. Well, there's a number of additional articles on the list that we haven't been able to talk uh, about, um, but I want to close by just mentioning one in passing, and that's Wayne DeOrio's article, Hamilton Goes to High School, which talks about efforts to try and bring New York City high schoolers in to the theater on Broadway in order to uh, both to get a chance to perform some of their own material that they've developed uh, with an aligned curriculum, uh, but also to just take in the performance. But what a wonderful figure Alexander Hamilton is. He was born in the islands. He comes here as a poor, nearly an orphan. He did have a mom. His dad was who knows where. And, uh, but his uncle paid his way to get to King's College at the time that the revolution broke out. And all of a sudden, he becomes secretary to George Washington. And without Hamilton, would we have really won the revolution? 
Would we really have a United States today without the dollar bill that he brought into being? What a fantastic story that is. Have you seen the musical? No. <laughs> <laughs> How good is it? It, 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 it? I'm impressed that you know as much as you do without it, but all of that is, is contained within it. It's, it's really remarkable, and I'm glad students are getting the chance to uh, be exposed to it. My guest today has been Paul Peterson, Senior Editor of Education Next. You can find a blog post with links to all of the articles we discussed and more on our website at educationnext.org. Paul, thanks for the conversation. Thank you. You've been listening to the EdNext Podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on Stitcher, Google Play, or Apple Podcasts. And while you're at it, be sure to check out our archives, where you can find each of the more than 100 episodes we've recorded since we launched in 2015.